Good morning, everyone who has been watching and listening throughout America and the world at large. I know there are some military folks who are watching. I love you very much. You know that. And we love you for your service, and we wish to honor you and hope you had a blessed Veterans Day this week. For our brothers and sisters overseas, we love you very much, of course. And we are very humbled and very honored to join us for our exposition of Scripture. And we love to hear from you. Uh, God bless you. I hope he has been blessing you. I know he's been blessing you. But we pray for your safety, particularly some of you in certain parts of the world. We thank of you constantly and love you very much. Please, please know that. And thank you for joining us. And we love you folks. And we cherish you. And we're glad you're back. And if you need anything at all, please let us, let us know. That goes for all of you folks in any circumstance or situation or trial that you may be going through. And for our folks about the country and about the world, even though with some of you we are separated by a tremendous amount of distance, please let us know how we can, we can pray for you. We do care for you very much. Please know that. Very well, this morning for our exposition through the Gospel of John, and in particular, and our journey through chapter 3, we're going to cover a fairly large amount of text this morning. So um, I ask you to be uh, patient and, and, and stay with me. I'm, pardon the expression, I'm really going to have to hit the ground running to get through the, the material that we have this morning. So would you stand with me please to honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Gospel of John chapter 3 this morning. Our, this morning's passage, we're back with John the Baptizer, the last time we hear from Brother John in this gospel. Verses 22 to 30. Next week we will, I believe we will hear once again from the Apostle John making commentary. And we'll uh, probably conclude this wonderful chapter. Perhaps. We will see. In studying for the following week, I never know how far I'm going to get till I'm actually working on it. So, I... Very much appreciate your patience. He must increase, I must decrease. Some of the most famous words in this gospel in the New Testament. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came or went into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John, that is John the Baptist, also was baptizing in Enon near Salim. Because there was much water there and they were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a certain Jew, that is a Jewish man from Judea, about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ." But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. Please be seated. In today's text, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, we return once more to the Messiah's herald, John the Baptizer. We hear from he who is the voice crying in the wilderness once more. 
John the baptizer makes a final appearance here in John's gospel, and he gives us another very important announcement, pronouncement, or teaching, a life lesson concerning the Messiah who has now arrived. And John the baptizer gives, really, one of his most important exhortations to his followers. This is something not only for John, this is something not only for his personal disciples at that time in the first century A.D., John is giving us a very important life lesson for all true followers and disciples of Jesus the Christ. This is for all of us. That's one of his most important exhortations in the Gospels from which we hear of John. And this is, of course, something, a life lesson concerning the person and work and mission of Jesus. The nature of his relationship to him, the nature of our relationship to him, the nature of life and mission and work with and under Jesus the Messiah. Let me give you a short paragraph. Uh, one of the when you are given the task of preaching through the Gospel of John and the choices of commentaries that you have, you can be completely overwhelmed, but you can be tremendously—I will use that word—blessed by the magnificent work of magnificent hearts and minds who have gone before us, and many contemporaries who are faithful to the Word of God, who've written some wonderful commentaries on the Gospel of John. One of the more recent ones, one of the more recent commentaries is, is, has been written by a, a gentleman by the name of Edward Clink, and at the beginning of each passage that he teaches, or as I like to say, he digs into, he unpacks, he likes to give you something of a main idea summary to encapsulate the main idea of that passage, and then he'll proceed to teach it. So let me share his main summary of this last passage in which we hear from John the Baptizer. The identity of the Christian is entirely defined by Jesus. Remember that. That is the main point of this passage. The identity of John, John says, is entirely defined by Jesus. John says to his followers, As with me, so it should be with you. Your total identity now in your life and purpose and mission is to be entirely defined by the Messiah. The one whom I've announced, the one whom I've prepared the way for, the one whose bride I am escorting to him. The same is true for us. The Christian, the identity of the Christian, he writes, is entirely defined by Jesus. And all Christian service must be submitted to the service that Jesus has already defined and offered. For these reasons, Jesus challenges not only the identity of the religious and political institutions of this world, but Jesus also challenges the identity of anyone in every so-called Christian ministry. Who do you really serve? What's your real purpose? Your real mission? Who is that for? Who is that all about? The task of the Christian minister or worker is to proclaim the good news of the person and work of Christ in such a way that even when using their own words, yet it is entirely another word that is heard. And that word must be the word of God, the gospel that is heard. Now, end quote. He did a great job of summarizing that up. By the way, this is going to be the fourth time, for you who like to get a little more technical, this is going to be the fourth successive passage or section in this gospel that points out that Jesus, he who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God, he who is the word made flesh, replaces and surpasses Old Covenant Judaism. He surpasses the era and the time of the Old Covenant. With Messiah's arrival comes the arrival of the prophesied new and better covenant, inaugurated by the Messiah himself. 
And this is very suddenly implied by John. Because as you, I hope you noticed in the text that we read, a certain Jewish man from Judea and his disciples, John's disciples, are going to get into this fight, this debate, this argument about Jesus' ministry compared to John's. And they bring Old Testament washings and ritualistic purification rites into it. And notice John just all but completely ignores that argument and that issue and goes straight to Jesus. John is subtly, perhaps not so subtly, implying, don't bother me with that now that the Messiah has arrived. You should know better. You've been hearing me all along. When Messiah arrives, he comes with a new way, a new world, a new era, a new covenant, and it replaces the old. Don't bother me with that now that the Messiah has arrived. Everything now that he has arrived, it is all about him. He's your mission and your purpose and your focus now. Verse 22 after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Actually, they were already there. It's a little difficult to translate that from the Greek. What he means is they went out into the province outside of Jerusalem. And there he was spending time with them, that is, his disciples, and also baptizing large numbers of people, larger crowds who are coming to him. So let me offer you this translation from the original as well. After this or after these things took place, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside out into the Judean province, where he was spending time with his disciples and baptizing. So after this, what does that mean? It means after the events of chapter 2. That is the first, I believe, the first temple cleansing of Jesus at this first very important Passover that he went to Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple, he preached and taught in the streets of Jerusalem during the festival of unleavened bread, which followed, probably performed miracles or signs of healing. He first comes into the public view, the public eye. He's stepping out into the world stage. That's what John means, after those events. Also, after the events of chapter 3, the, that fateful meeting with Nicodemus. Now, how much time has elapsed between these events? We're not certain. John does not give us those details. Probably not a long period of time. Probably shortly afterwards, as we would say. So after this Passover, after this meeting with Nicodemus, these few weeks in Jerusalem, shortly afterwards... Jesus is on with his mission, and now he is on with his mission with his disciples. And if uh, we'll learn from this gospel, and if you recall from the other gospels, he's going to be working his way slowly but surely back north towards Galilee and begin his ministry, his public ministry in Galilee. And actually, that is where most of the other gospels begin. John is giving us some events before that take place before the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which uh, most of the other gospels start with. Okay, um, He's on his mission with his disciples. He's going to have to take these men out into the countryside and spend some time with them, preparing them and teaching them. And John, the apostle, makes a point to record that, to tell us that, because, of course, he is amongst their number. So they leave Jerusalem for the open countryside of the Judean province. Now, where exactly? Well, what, what we don't know exactly, there are some theories and some very, very likely theories that are debated as to exactly what region Jesus took his disciples to at this particular time. Obviously, a place where they could accommodate large crowds and where there was plentiful water supply to begin baptizing people. So one location that's probable is an area very near Jericho. And it uh, was and is uh, an area where there was, a, especially in the first century A.D., we are told there were a number of very convenient fording places along the Jordan River there, 
There was, a, of course, plentiful supply of water. It was a good place to baptize large numbers of people. It was actually a good place for a lot of people to be able to camp there, to stay for an extended period of time and to travel. So as the prologue told us, there he is, God the Almighty in a human body who has come to dwell amongst humanity and who has come to dwell amongst his people. He pinched his dwelling amongst us. And here he is literally doing that now. Not in Jerusalem, but by the banks of the Jordan River. And this is one of the most wonderful, it is the most wonderful era in history. The old covenant is now beginning to transition to the new covenant. And God Almighty, the Son in the flesh, has finally arrived by divine plan to invade his own creation, to perform the greatest rescue mission that has ever been performed. Wonderful, wonderful time in history. He is now dwelling in the flesh amongst humanity and amongst his people. Constantly keep that in your minds as we approach December and Christmas. That prologue of the Gospel of John is Christmas. It's what Christmas is all about. This right here is what Christmas is all about. It's not just that manger. It is the infleshing of God the Almighty in a human body and human nature to offer atonement and salvation to His human creatures who are to bear, bear His image. Don't let the manger story, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? Or the trees for the forest, however that saying goes. Remember the big picture in your celebration, in your meditations, in your worship of the Word made flesh at Christmas time. Now this particular time period when Jesus is venturing out into the Judean countryside, oh, it's not cold November. It is part of spring, early summer, a near eastern spring or early summer after Passover, of course. And so now, as you've noticed as we read the text, the preaching and baptizing ministry of Jesus is simultaneous with John's. It's somewhat an overlap with that of John the baptizer. And that's shaking some people. That's rattling and disturbing some people. Some of the populace and even John the baptizer's followers. And there's really no reason for that. It shouldn't be. So John the Baptist corrects them. So Jesus is beginning to baptize people at the same time that John, the Messiah's herald and witness, is continuing to baptize people, even though you must understand that Jesus and his disciples and John and his followers are in two different locations along the Jordan River. The text says he was spending time with them. It doesn't mean that necessarily the populace at large. John means the disciples, Jesus' personal disciples, chosen disciples. He was spending time with them. So Jesus was teaching and training his disciples during this time period. It's important to note that. He wants some personal time with these men through whom he will change the world. When his mission in his first advent nears its completion, he's teaching them, he's preparing them, as well as serving the public at large, as we would say. These crowds who are in ever-increasing numbers being drawn to him. He was spending time with his disciples and he was baptizing, the text says. Now what about that? So we have John baptizing. Now we have Jesus and his disciples baptizing? Well, what's up with that, as we say? What is that all about? What of this baptism here? What of Jesus' baptism, baptism pardon me, compared to John's? Is this the beginning of, or is this becoming what we will know of as Christian baptism, which we are commanded to honor and observe until our Lord returns? After all, Jesus, well, 
He is baptizing people. That is, we will find that his disciples, and this is an important point as well, more on this shortly. His disciples are baptizing people on his behalf. Jesus probably isn't actually in the water with them. He's presiding over the whole affair. And he has his disciples in his name and by his authority, at his behest and instruction, they're going into the water and they're baptizing these people and serving them in that way. Nevertheless, you can say Jesus and his men, his disciples, are baptizing people. Now first, it probably should be said that we are in something of a transition time between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Magnificent time in history again. Things are changing and will change forever. It is a transition time between John's baptism and now a baptism of Jesus. We are on our way to experiencing what we will observe as Christian baptism now that the Messiah is here. But we should remember, this is an important point I believe to remember, that in both John's baptism and in the baptism of Jesus, water represents something. Of course it does. This ceremony, this rite, this ritual, it is extremely meaningful. It represents something. In both baptisms, in both baptisms, pardon me, water represents the spiritual cleansing of a person's soul. Repentance, renewal, spiritual new life, being forgiven of one's sins and repentance before God. Both means the same thing. The spiritual cleansing of a person. Important to note that in Jesus' baptism, what we will obey as Christian baptism, true cleansing of the person's soul is, of course, achieved by the atoning blood of the sacrifice of Christ. He who John earlier called, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sins of people from all over the world. And, of course, water, represent, is, water is a symbol of the Spirit of God from the Old Testament. And it also represents the Spirit of God applying the atoning work of the Son to the soul of human beings, giving them new life, the new birth, and cleansing them of their sin. In John's baptism, water represents a person coming to God in repentance and thereby being cleansed of their sin. John's baptism means to prepare somebody to receive the ultimate cleansing brought about by God's Messiah, the Savior, who was to come and has now arrived preparing to receive God's Messiah, God's provided Savior, and being cleansed of your sins. So again, it is the Messiah himself, his atoning work that ultimately cleanses a person of their sin. Both baptisms mentioned, both baptisms taking place here are ultimately founded, be assured, on the person and work of Christ. Now notice also, Jesus is not doing the actual physical baptizing. But his disciples are at his instruction in his behalf. That's important. Even though they're actually doing the physical baptizing of these people, they're doing it at his instruction, at his behest. Therefore, it is done in the name of and the authority of Jesus. Now, what does this mean by the culture of that time? I have to tell you what this means by the culture of that time for you to truly appreciate it. By having other people baptized for him, by having his disciples baptize these people for him, again, at his instruction, Jesus is demonstrating something. He is demonstrating that he is greater in stature than John the baptizer. He is demonstrating that he is greater in authority than John the baptizer. And that his baptism is even import, more important, perhaps, than John the baptizers. He's saying, remember the one who John preached and proclaimed and was pointing to? I'm the one. 
I will take over baptism now. From John. Jesus is indeed the one John announced him as pointing to. He, Jesus, has arrived with a greater baptism, the greatest baptism of all. We should be remembering John's words from chapter 1, verse 33. What does John say? Chapter 1, verse 33, When the Messiah comes, he will arrive with a greater baptism. He will baptize people in and with the Spirit of God himself. And now he's here. These baptisms are not in any way in competition with one another, nor are they contradicting one another. Both baptisms are both founded on, ultimately, the person and work of Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. And John the baptizer, he's just as much a servant of Christ, of the Messiah, as he ever was. He's just as much baptizing for Jesus as the personal disciples of Jesus now are in the Jordan River. We should not defy it. Some folks have tried to do this. John's disciples are trying to do this. Some people from the populace are trying to do this. John will tell us we should not divide or disassociate him in any way, shape, or form from Jesus. From Jesus' cause and mission and service. John is still serving his Messiah. He's still faithfully serving the Messiah that he came to proclaim. And now John's Messiah is here. And John is bursting with joy all over the place. His life's mission is succeeding perfectly. And he's seeing it take place. He's witnessing it. Now the Messiah is here. Everything is going to change. John's mission is coming to a successful completion. 23. And John also was baptizing in Enon, near Salim, or Salem, peace, because there was much water there, and they were coming and being baptized. So while Jesus and his disciples are teaching and baptizing somewhere else in the countryside of Judea, it is possible that John remained a little further to the north where we last left him. Although it is a distinct possibility some time has elapsed, so John may be working his way gradually a little further south. But they are in different locations along the Jordan. Now for those of you who love history, the exact location of John is disputed. However, the Apostle John gives us an important historical footnote here. We can know the region or the place with a pardon my redundancy, a certain amount of certainty in where John and his disciples and the crowds were gathering at this time, Enon near Salim, or Enon near Salem. Uh, there are two primary locations which are supposed to be the exact place. And if you take a tour to Israel, you can go there. Uh, both are about six miles south of this uh, believed location, Bethany beyond the Jordan, or a place called Beit Shan. They were roughly next to or just within the region of Samaria. Now, where are we going to be in chapter 4? Samaria. Does this make sense? In the first century A.D., they're probably just on the border or just within the region of Samaria. And that's significant considering Jews and Samaritans bitterly hate each other at this particular time. Also, at, the, in, at this time, in the first century A.D., that region was part of the Roman province of Judea. Now, Enon, if you've ever wondered about this word, it's a Semitic, it's an Aramaic word, and it means uh, plentiful springs or many waters. It's obvious a place where there was plentiful supply of water, as the text tells us. Enon means many, spring, uh, many waters or many springs. Salim means peace, or many waters or springs of peace is what the name means. Uh, the church historian Eusebius as well gives us some information as to where John was at this time. And John probably 
uh, as we would say in the 21st century, he's probably in a centrally located place, as we would say. Of course, probably in a centrally located place, a region on the borders of Judea where people from probably about three, if not four different provinces could fairly easily get to. And as the text says, and they were coming and they were being baptized. So people were still coming out on the fringes of settlement to John the baptizer from just about almost every direction still to be baptized and to hear his message of the Messiah. Now, it's a little different. Before it was repent, he's on his way. Now it's repent, he's here. He's arrived. Time's up. He's here. And the original Greeks suggest that, yes, people in pretty large numbers were still constantly coming out to be baptized by John. But now notice what the text is telling us. Something interesting is happening. Things are changing. John has been announcing Jesus, and so people are beginning to listen to John. They're obeying what he said. They're taking to heart what he said. They're starting to do what he said. They're leaving him and following Jesus just as he instructed them to do. They're now beginning to follow Jesus in ever-increasing numbers. They're starting to leave John just as John wants. And they're now resorting to Jesus. So John is, as one would expect, faithfully carrying out and now close to completing his mission. Verse 24, for John, now this is an interesting little footnote of history here. John had not yet been thrown into prison. I've already had somebody ask me, what's that there for? That just simple little offhand statement. You can almost put it in parentheses. It's like a historical footnote. Remember, or I'm telling you now, or you should remember, or you should know, that John the baptizer at this time had not yet been thrown into prison, the apostle says. It's an interesting little note of detail or piece of information that he gives us about John the baptizer. Why is this? Why does he make this remark? Well, it's something, as I said a moment before, let's call it an inspired historical footnote on the apostle John's part. It's a historical note for clarification, actually. We believe, and I, I think we are correct to rightfully believe, that probably the last of the four Gospels to be written was the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John has read the other three Gospels. He's very well aware of them. He's keenly aware of what they say and what they teach. So John being aware of what has already been written, he gives us this historical footnote. Why? He wants you, the reader, he wants you to be absolutely clear with some accuracy as to the historical facts of the chronology of this time in the early ministry of Jesus. That is, John the Apostle, the author, he wants the reader to understand that the period he is discussing in these verses, and likely all of Jesus' ministry that we've been reading and studying, as recorded in chapters 2 through 4 actually, all of this takes place earlier than Jesus' ministry as recorded in the other Gospels which is what all the other Gospels start with. They all start with Jesus' ministry in Galilee at the time or after John was arrested. But John the Apostle is telling you, what I've been teaching you, chapters 2, and it will continue through 4, this all happened before all of that took place, when Jesus began His public ministry in Galilee that the other Gospel writers told you all about. Verse 25, For there, And there arose, now we're getting to the heart of the lesson, the heart of the matter. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. There's some questions there, too. I hope I can clarify this for you. So now something of a debate, something of an argument 
has arisen between the personal disciples of John the Baptizer and a certain Jewish man from Judea. New American Standard Bible, and many of your translations will probably just simply say, um, a discussion arose or argument arose on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now the way John uses the word Jew, a lot of times the Jews means the Jewish religious establishment that pits themselves against Jesus. A very few times in this gospel, Jew means the Jewish people at large. But here, it just simply means a certain Jewish man who is from the province of Judea gets into an argument and a debate with John's disciples. Why are they getting into an argument or a debate? Well, the root cause of the argument or debate is the Old Covenant. And probably the rites and rituals and rules and regulations, not only of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but all these man-made, unbiblical, extra-biblical rules and regulations of washing that has been piled on them by the Pharisees and others of the religious establishment. And so they get into this argument and this debate about it all. Do we still observe that? Well, what about John baptizing? And now Jesus, who he's calling the Messiah, is baptizing. What do we do here? Who do we obey? What do we observe? Which is better? Back and forth. And there we go. This confusing sort of religious argument and debate. And John the baptizer is going to settle it all in one fell swoop because Jesus has come to settle it all and fulfill it all in one fell swoop of his mission. So this issue is over purification, ceremonial ritual washing practices of the Old Testament. Jewish purification rites, very important to Jews and Judaism at this time. And Jesus and his disciples, now baptizing, get pulled into this argument and get pulled into this debate by this certain man from Judea who may be with the Pharisees, we don't really know. And they're starting to compare and contrast Jesus and John's baptisms as if one is right and one is wrong, or as if they're in competition with one another or conflict with one another, or, or uh, one contradicts the other. And as I told you before, well, nothing of the kind. They're, they're wrong-headed, they're wrong-hearted in this argument, or, or at least to an appreciable degree, part of it. Now this word discussion that often appears in English translations, really in the Greek it could or should just as well be translated as debate. This is a heated debate. This is an argument. So what's going on here? A little more clarification, I hope. What is in the world does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with comparing Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist's ministry? Well, hopefully, simply put, it's this. This debate about, this debate concerning Old Testament Jewish purification rites and rituals, this arose because, if you remember, John the baptizer didn't obey and follow all the man-made rules of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He obeyed the Bible. He obeyed the Old Covenant but he didn't obey their man-made rules and regulations that were piled onto the Bible, that were extra-biblical or even unbiblical. John didn't observe that. He didn't follow that. He didn't follow certain or all of those extra-biblical or unbiblical traditions of washing practice by the Pharisees and others of the religious establishment, if I may call them that. And so that may have riled the ire of this particular Jewish-Judean man. And now Jesus is pretty much doing the same thing as John, or very similar. And so they get into this argument. And this apparently causes John the baptizer's followers some concern. They get rattled. They get shaken. Perhaps their egos get a little bruised. Perhaps they get a little, a little concerned about the future of their mission. 
and their identity and purpose in the religious life of the nation. And so it causes John's, John the Baptizer's personal followers to, I think, highly likely become somewhat jealous or envious of what's going on with Jesus, of Jesus' rising popularity and Jesus' use of his disciples in baptizing this people. So as po Jesus' popularity increases, they get shaken up while their popularity and the popularity of their master, John, is beginning to decrease. Who are you really in this for? I'd like to ask this to a lot of those in so-called ministry in America. Who are you really in this for? Who do you really serve? Some of them I think it's agonizingly and contemptibly obvious. Others maybe it's a little more subtle. But some legitimate questions arise. And this is the heart of the message for each and every one of us who claim to be servants of Christ and who claim to be true followers of Jesus Christ. Who are you really all about? Yourself or he who is the Word made flesh and his agenda, his kingdom, and his plan? And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Maybe just an announcement, maybe something of a complaint, something of a concern. And so John's followers and disciples, who are now perhaps resenting or envious of the rising popularity of Jesus in his ministry, they go and report, they complain of this perhaps, to their teacher, to their rabbi, John the Baptist. Now these followers of John, where have they gone wrong? Well, haven't they been with John all along? And haven't they been listening to him all along? Haven't they been paying close attention to what he's been saying and what he's been doing all along? To the purpose of his mission all along? They, of course, they had to have known full well that John proclaimed and pointed to Jesus. John was a witness too. John was a witness for Jesus. But I think what's going on in their head is, or perhaps with their bruised egos, is, well, what in the world do we and our rabbi do now? What is the witness to do when the one who is the object of the witness has arrived? And everybody's going to him. What do we do now? What are they and their rabbi John the Baptist to do now? Are we to be made irrelevant? Are we going to be set aside and ignored? Now that the crowds are going to Jesus just as their rabbi wanted all along? Verse 27, And John answered and said, these wonderful parables, these wonderful truths, these wonderful lessons, these wonderful parables that he gives us. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. In other words, what are you talking about? What is this? You should know better. Haven't you been listening to me? Haven't you been with me? Does this sound familiar? A little late in the Gospels, doesn't Jesus say basically the same thing to his followers? What is this all about? What are you saying? Haven't you been with me all this while? Haven't you been watching? Haven't you been listening? So, sounds familiar, doesn't it? So John's reply to them, it's magnificent, isn't it? It's very humble. It's totally contrary to selfish human nature. Therefore, it is surprising. And yes, it is very noble. It is very noble, as one would say. And this is John's answer. This is his resolution. 
to his followers' problem, his followers' concern. John gives his response. Isn't it interesting? He gives his response in the way of something of an aphorism, a little maxim, or as we would say, his answer comes by way of a parable or a proverb. John is saying, and it's interesting what he chooses. He does the same thing as Jesus does. Notice, in Jesus' parables, he often pulls what? From agricultural life, family life, communal life. He speaks to them in terms and language that they can understand, that they identify with on a daily basis. John does exactly the same thing. First of all, he, makes an, a, a, he gives us an obvious truth, which should be an obvious truth about our relationship with God. God in heaven, the sovereign God, is in control of everything. Everything that you have at any given moment in your life is given to you as a gift. Don't forget that. Don't get above yourself. Know your place. But also John will use this little proverb or this parable, a wedding. Sound familiar? And Jesus does exactly the same thing. And he gives us, for the first time we hear in this gospel, of Jesus Christ as the great bridegroom and his redeemed people, his people restored to him by his person and work, will be called collectively his bride. And of course, John, you have to know something culturally. A Jewish wedding was one of the most celebrated, most important, most joyous occasions and celebrations and events in the life of any Jewish person, personally, familial, and by way of the community. It's something all of these people will very uh, powerfully, it will resonate with them. They'll identify with it. So what is John saying by way of this parable? Let me start the list. John is saying this to them. Know your place. Know your place in God's purposes and plans. And be content with what God gives you. Know your place in His purpose and His plan. Don't try to get above that. Be content with what God gives us and where He places us. John is saying, don't be envious. Remember, this is really all about God. It's all about His Christ. It's all about His plan. This is not about me. This is not about us, he is saying. I serve God. We serve God. His plan, His agenda, not one of our own. All that we have is a gracious gift of God according to a sovereign plan. We should not be envious of His Messiah and not try to get above ourselves, to get above our God-given place that He has given to us graciously, that He has assigned to us. John's simple proverb tells his followers, tells us, his contemporary followers, that God, when He says everything that's given you is given to you from heaven, that's a common Jewish circumlocution for saying God. God in His heaven. God in His heaven sovereignly gives human beings, here in particular, His servants, His people. He sovereignly gives His servants, His people, whatever they have and whatever they are at any given time. And God gave John the baptizer a very wonderful and particular role to play and task to perform in God's plan, in God's redemptive history in this world. And John is perfectly content with that, humble considering it, and totally dedicated to it. How are we getting along with our assigned task and purpose and plan on our watch and our place in history in the divine plan? So it is with John, so it should be with you. So it should be with me, with all followers of Christ. And John, God bless him, he's perfectly content. He's perfectly happy with that. He's perfectly obedient to that. John is saying jealousy, envy, discontent. There's no place for that. 
No jealousy, no envy, no discontent over God's plan, over God's gracious gifts. That demonstrates grotesque ingratitude, even unbelief to a degree. At worst, idolatrous, self-interested arrogance. This is about God. Never lose sight of that. It's not about us. We need to remember our place. We need to be content. We need to be grateful. 28, you yourselves, (laughs) you've been listening to me all along, haven't you? You all along, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. What's all the fuss about? It should be about him who I have been making a great fuss about for some time now. But I have been sent before him to prepare the way for him. And so John simply reminds them of what he said all along, what he's been saying and doing all along, what his mission has been all along. It was all about Jesus all along. Question for us. As followers of Jesus Christ, are we like John? We should be. We should be like John. Our mission, our purpose is all about Jesus and was to be all about Jesus all along. Is it? John was a man who said what he meant, and he meant what he said. He meant what he proclaimed. He was faithful to his God-given role, and he was entirely content with his God-given role. And so we should be too. We should know our place in the divine plan, and we should be grateful and content with that. 29. He, and here's this wonderful parable, his wonderful little proverb, parabolic teaching. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, he who has the people. Remember, John is keenly aware. Folks, you may not be aware of this. Let me jog your memory. There are numerous times in the Old Testament in which God refers to himself as a bridegroom or a husband and Israel as his bride or his wife. John is keenly aware of this. All of the Jewish people that he's speaking to should be keenly aware of this. He who has the bride, the people of God, is the bridegroom, God himself. He who has the people is the Messiah, God the Son in the flesh. But the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of God who stands and hears Him, serves Him, obeys Him, honors Him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He's here, and I'm with Him. And so this joy of mine has been made full. It's amazing what he he says here. And so John proceeds with this really wonderful parable explaining his understanding of his own God-given role. See what he's doing? He's explaining his understanding of his God-given role. He gets it. He's explaining his relationship to and with the Messiah. The Messiah who is his purpose and his mission. John is saying that he is the friend who attends the bridegroom. He is the friend of the Messiah who has arrived in person at last. What is he saying? Jesus is the bridegroom. And John is saying that he is the equivalent of the best man, as we would say. 
He is the equivalent of the best man to the bridegroom who is here. And he serves Jesus the bridegroom. He serves the bridegroom and his bride. He helps preside over the wedding that is about to take place. I have to tell you, the... <clears throat> a little bit of culture for you, not to, to wear you out too much. But what John is saying is a little more important than what we understand as, as a best man. Our best man does not have the responsibility and authority that the friend of the bridegroom had in a Jewish wedding in the first century A.D. In fact, I think that remember back the wedding in Cana, Jesus' first miracle, water into wine, the steward of the feast? It is a distinct possibility that he was the best man at that particular wedding because the best man had a lot of responsibility. He often helped the families and the parents and the bride and bridegroom arrange the wedding. He presided over the wedding ceremony itself to make sure that it went off well. He took care of all of the preparations of all the arrangements and uh, even took charge of the wedding feast. So he had a lot of responsibility. John is saying, that's who I am. I know full well. And I'm carrying out my duties and my responsibilities to the letter. And I am absolutely bursting at the seams from my soul outwards that my mission is going without a hitch. It's successfully being completed right now in front of my eyes. He's here. He's arrived. And the bride who are the people of God, I am assuring them to Him. And He's here and the wedding is about to take place. What's wrong with you people? Don't you get this? Don't you see this? It's what I've been talking about all along. You shouldn't be debating. You shouldn't be arguing. You should be bursting at the seams with joy with me. That He's here. A new era, a new age now begins. God has arrived in the flesh and His people, His bride, are being brought to Him. John is that wonderful man that straddles two eras of history. He's a very unique individual. He has one foot and one leg in the Old Covenant and one foot and one leg in the New Covenant. He literally is a transition period in the history of the world, in the history of God's redemptive plans in history, right? He receives his greatest joy, his greatest fulfillment, his greatest satisfaction, his greatest personal glory in serving the bridegroom. How's that coming along with us? Is your greatest joy, your greatest fulfillment, your greatest satisfaction, your greatest personal glory in serving the bridegroom or yourself? That's what John's saying. We should be serving the Messiah's ceremony and agenda, right? Our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment, just as John should come from serving the Messiah bridegroom, his kingdom, his ceremony, his agenda, his bride. And we're a part of that bride, by the by. So our joy should be all the more. John is rejoicing. He's fulfilled his given mission in helping the great bridegroom, being united with his bride, God's redeemed people. It's a joyful occasion. And obviously John is keenly aware of all those Old Testament metaphors of God as bridegroom or husband, his people as his bride. And Jesus, the Messiah, the word... Here's the... Jesus, the Messiah, the word made flesh, he is God, the bridegroom arrived in person, in the flesh, at last. And John is his best man, as it were. And John is absolutely overjoyed. I hope that little one becomes overjoyed soon. But in contrast, John is overjoyed at this privilege. How's your joy at your privilege? You know how privileged you are? Sinners that we are, all deserving of hell? 
That He has chosen you by divine plan from before the foundation of the world to be a part of His bride, His purpose, His plan, His kingdom, to bear His image and to enjoy Him personally forever? How's that for a privilege? How's that for a privilege? Oh, how privileged we are. And to live in the era of the new covenant, the bride of Christ, the kingdom as it is, inaugurated in its world and working its way steadily towards its completion, the wrapping up of the divine plan every hour, every minute, every split second of every day towards its inexorable conclusion of which we will be a part We should rejoice as well over our place and our privilege as members of that bride. And we should rejoice and be grateful for our place and our task in the divine plan. And so John says, and so this joy of mine has been made full. The word that's used there is a wonderful Greek word, pleroma, or a form of the word pleroma, meaning filled up to bursting, filled up to splitting open, filled up to overflowing, absolutely complete, satisfied in every way. John is saying he has the final, lasting, and ultimate satisfaction of seeing and knowing that his God-given mission, his ministry in this life, has, be, has been successful. How's that coming along for you? Will we be able to say the same thing? Are you able to say something like that now? Will we be able to say or experience the same thing at the end of our life over our God-given mission and purpose? Can we say something like that now? But as you're gasping out your last on your deathbed, will you be able to be bursting with joy as John the Baptist was bursting with joy? John the Baptist died by violence. Many people watching and listening today to this message may very well die for God, for Christ, by violence. Who knows, we may. And I guarantee you, as John laid his head on that chopping block in that filthy, vile, corrupt politician's palace, when the blade was coming down, he was bursting with joy that his life's mission was complete, satisfied, successful. And his next breath would be taken in the personal presence of God the Almighty, whom he served. Will we be able to say the same as John and be the same as John? Can we also say this? John is saying people in greater numbers are following after Jesus, the bridegroom. That's exactly what John had been living for. That's exactly what he'd been working for all along. Is the same for us. Is it the same with us? To successfully cause others in ever-increasing numbers to follow after the bridegroom. You've been accomplishing that to a degree. For by live streaming this, putting it on Facebook, the internet, what have you, there are people literally on the far side of the world who are hearing this, getting this, receiving this, and may very well be coming to eternal life as members of that bride to join that bridegroom. Verse 30. We're nearing the end. Well, we are. Final verse for the day. One of those famous words or statements in the Old New Testament, pardon me. He must increase. I must decrease. Here endeth the lesson. He must increase. 
I must decrease. Same with all of you. It's, it's, it's all about Him. And now we enter into one of the most, well, I hope you find some of the most wonderful truths of the lesson. It's a tremendous verse. When you really take the time to pray over this and think about it and meditate over it. A truth, again, it's not only for John and his followers in the first century A.D. It's for us. It's for all true followers of Jesus. John is embracing his God-given role with all of his heart, do we? John is embracing his God-given role with all of his heart. And that God-given role assigns all supremacy happily and gratefully to Jesus Christ. How is that coming along with us? Do we embrace our God-given role with all of our hearts? And do we assign happily and gladly and gratefully all supremacy to Him? And to Him alone? As it is with John, so it should be with us. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. We must become less. Notice John says must. D-E-I in the Greek, must. Must means must. Absolute must, imperative. Must means nothing less than the determined plan and will of God Himself. Must means that which is in accordance with God's eternal plan. As it is with John, so it is with all of His true followers, all of His true disciples, all of His true redeemed people. And here's the wonderful, beautiful truth of this. Look at John. So it is with John, so it should be with you. John has something that you should have. Here's the wonderful, beautiful truth. Here's the beauty of this. And some would call it something of a paradox. How contradictory is this to human nature? It's this. As Jesus increases and John decreases, John's joy, his satisfaction, his fulfillment becomes exponentially greater. He can't contain himself. How contrary to fallen sinful human nature is that? This would be the same thing with you and me. For the true followers of Jesus Christ, as Jesus increases in and over and through your life, and you get over yourself and decrease, become lesser as He becomes greater and greater and greater, your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction and your fulfillment, like John's, becomes greater. Try it. It works. That's the recipe. That's the joy. Well, that's the recipe for real joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. Get into Him. Get over yourself. Decrease as He increases in and over and through your life, and you will be bursting at the seams with joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment. That's a magnificent lesson, folks. That's a tremendous life lesson and reality for all of Christ's true followers and disciples in this world. To close, I give you one last statement from a wonderful old theologian. I've mentioned him before. He was an Australian. He's now in a father's house. His name was Brother Leon Morris. And, oh my goodness, we've got to get after this publishing company's mark to put all of Leon Morris's books back in the print. Most of his commentaries are, but this was an act of providence, I guarantee you. I went to Half Price Books in Dayton one day, and there on the shelves was Expository Reflections on the Gospel of John by Leon Morris. <laughs> 
any of Leon Morris's books. If you see them, get them. Read them. It's a wonderful little book. And I will close with a statement he makes about the truth of, of this passage. He writes, It is a very good thing when God's servants are simply content to serve well in whatever place that He is assigned to them and do not set their hearts on some higher place or ambition or position that is not theirs to seek or to claim. True humility and the conviction that all that matters most is that God's purposes be set forward, not that I should be seen to be wonderful. All of this is still absolutely essential in the work of God. End quote. So these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the great bridegroom in the flesh, and that by believing, by decreasing, as He increases, you may have life eternal. Untold joy, satisfaction, fulfillment in His name. Amen. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for our elder brother John, who we love so much and so wish to emulate. One of the most wonderful men who ever lived in history, by Your mercy and by Your grace and by Your plan. Thank You for his faithfulness to the death and beyond. And help us to follow in his footsteps with all of our might, Help us, as a simple lesson says, to get our priorities right and our priorities straight. It is all about you, your mission, your purpose, your plan in this world and this universe. And help all of us who have listened to this text and will listen to this text. May we decrease as we seek for Jesus to increase. May we decrease truly and may he increase truly in, through, and over our lives that our joy may be made complete. Thank you, O sovereign God, for your graciousness and your mercy in making us, saving us, and making us part of this plan. In the name of he who is the bridegroom made flesh, Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen.